people pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Ennek a családnak a története akkor kezdődik. Amikor szörnyű véget ér. Vágy és termékeny képzelet. Kálmán Féri. És sajnos apa. A fiú célja a halhatatlanság. Az életért cserébe. Hazaérkezett. Az év felfedezése. Egy magyar film, amely nemzetközi sikert aratott. Taxidermia. Pálfi György filmje. November 9-től a mozikban. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Jonathan Owen. Hello, good to be back. Also back in the booth is Ms. Lumi Etienne. Hello, it's lovely to be back again. This week we are looking at the Hungarian film from 2006, Taxidermia, directed and co-written by Georgi Palfi. The film tells the story of three generations of an unusual family. Grandpa Vendel is in the military and serves at an outpost under the boot heel of his commanding officer. Father Kalman is a competitive eater, and son Lajoska is a taxidermist, hence the name of the film. There is a lot more going on, and we are determined to spoil things for each and every listener unless they take steps to watch the movie first. You have been warned. So, Lumi, you actually asked for this back in 2022, I believe. So, when was the first time you saw Taxidermia, and what did you think? I mean, I thought it was bonkers. It's more fun to think about and to analyze and to wonder how these decisions came to be made than it is to watch. It's quite a disgusting watch. And the way that I remember this episode coming about is like hearing that you had seen it in the cinema, Mike, and just being like, what was that like? Were there walkouts? 
I don't remember walkouts. This was at a press and industry screening at the Toronto Film Festival, so Jonathan's Backyard. And yeah, I don't remember any walkouts, but I was so enwrapped in this movie, I don't think I would have been paying attention. Toronto audiences are very polite. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> You'd have to. They put up with a lot of stuff, yes. And Jonathan, how about you? When was the first time you saw this one? I first saw it in about 2009 or 2010, and I first heard about it through my brother, because he, he's a big fan of Amon Tobin, who did the the score, and so he had come across it first, but had not seen it. He told me about it. I read a little bit about it before I saw it, but not enough to spoil it, but just enough to warn me. And I was not too upset by it, even though I am pretty squeamish about anything to do with food in movies. I don't even really like watching people eating much in movies, but somehow I was not too offended or upset. And yeah, I really liked it. The first time I saw it, I was most taken by the idea of the competitive eating in the communist uh, era that it shows and i thought that was just a, such a brilliant way of representing that era so that really struck me and the ending as well the ending really stayed with me burned in my brain those final scenes so made a pretty good impression yeah i hadn't seen this one since 2006 until i rewatched it this week and it felt like i had just watched it so many of these images had stuck in my brain things like first person with the candle and the flame coming out of his dick. I'm like, how do you forget an image like that, right? And what a way to kick off a film. Hearing a summary of Taxidermia, it sets you up to expect the expected, right? Which is another film coming out of East Central Europe that explores the reverberations of political and social climates on three generations of men, right? Like we've seen this before with, with Sunshine by Istvan Sabo. A lot of people are wondering, like, why so many films from this region are still dredging up the past, and especially the events of World War II. And it's interesting how the film really begins with an answer to that question. So title credits are rolling against a back screen, and we're hearing this Hungarian man being interpreted in English for a globalized audience. And he's saying, if something comes to an end, then its beginning will also be important. By engaging our senses, rather than telling us a narrative in an expected way, by engaging our senses, by provoking disgust, taxidermia is like mapping this legacy of trauma onto our bodies. And in perpetuating that trauma, it's really asking whether something can be over. Trauma is a wound that doesn't heal, right? And whether Hungary is finished with authoritarian rule if trauma goes unaddressed, if it keeps being recycled in our bodies and our psyches from one generation into the next, and also from the screen onto the spectator's body, it's an interesting way to start a film. Yeah, I really like the way you mentioned the fact that you're hearing that commentary at the beginning before you even see anything, and you have the translation into English. And as you say, that is meant to inscribe somehow that globalized perspective. And it's interesting that the film is framed by that kind of Western or Westernized eye somehow, isn't it? And uh, there's almost a sort of a self-consciousness there that I guess we are making a film in the, the kind of post-communist era, I guess, with a view to attracting a global English-speaking audience. And for me, there's a very deliberate way that the film does that. It's a very deliberate tactic to begin it and end it with an English translation. There's a whole kind of discussion about 
probably I've read more in relation to post-Yugoslav cinema about how I guess there is this Western perspective on East Central Europe or on Eastern Europe as a kind of a freak show. And it's about that representation of this kind of stereotypical savage, savagery. And the film is almost disarming us or it's almost putting that in quote marks. It's giving that a sort of self-awareness by positioning it within that viewpoint of a kind of global or Western eye. It's also interesting because the film itself is a cycle, right? It begins and ends at the same point. But when you actually see the character translating for us, the globalized audience, you realize that the posh British accent is dubbed, right? The words don't match the speaker. And it's this kind of, the globalization is conveyed as an artifice, right? It's like a clear artifice. And it matches the very artificial look of the international art scene at this opening, right? With, they're all in like pristine white and many of them have cowboy hats which might be a reference to American hegemony and it's a very sick look at the globalized international art scene and it's condemning it as wanting to see this savagery as you put it nicely and wanting to see these bodies commodified just as they've been commodified throughout history right and reduced to use value so yeah it conveys the savagery in the viewer as well as in the action there's this great moment where like Lyosh is feeding the cats and the dad's you skinny idiot i can't even look at you and Lyosh just turns to us and goes then stop looking right it's a real condemnation of the potentially grossed out viewer if you're really so grossed out why are you still here what is your prurient interest there's deleted scenes that are included on this DVD, which was a little tough to find, this disc, but hopefully it'll be a little bit easier to find in the future. There are, well, there's a ton of deleted scenes. A lot of them are just like little bits and pieces here and there that don't, for me, add too much to the story, but the stuff at the end is what it really adds to. And I love that we're starting at the end of this movie and working backwards. We see more of the audience that's there watching this presentation, and we see that they have all these, they almost look like pillows that are around their feet, and just all of these little taxidermied things that are around them. We don't see that in the final film, or at least it's not presented as clearly as it is in this deleted scene. Also, there's a deleted moment of the doctor who is giving this presentation, who is being translated we actually see that he was witness to the creation of this artwork that in the final film, he's like, oh, well, when I came in and I saw this and da-da-da-da-da, and I'm like, no, you didn't. You're a liar. You didn't see this. You came in afterwards. But he did see it. He was locked in the cage while this was going on. There's even a moment where I want to say that, speaking of cycles, I want to say that the movie almost began when it came to the head being cut off of the body because the head starts to speak. And I wish these, I did not see subtitles for these deleted scenes. So the head begins to speak and then we go to the camera moves down and it looks like boot prints. And then it becomes, I believe the grandfather. So it kind of cycles, yeah, cycles through with that. So very interesting. We're seeing decisions being made with these deleted scenes that really change a lot of how this movie is shaped. So I guess with that original framing, it's as though Lyosh would be the one kind of telling the story because, yes, he's starting to narrate. And I don't really know German, but the actor was German and he's speaking in German. That's what I thought. I got the word grandmother somewhere and I 
So I, it does sound like he's starting to tell the, the saga. And so that's interesting that originally it would have been framed by his own voice rather than that of the art expert. So that, yeah, as you say, it's a very interesting choice that was made in post-production to, to frame it from the art experts and that kind of Western perspective, Westernized perspective. And as you say, the fact that he has actually seen it, according to the deleted scenes, he's actually seen this horrible thing happen. Whereas, yeah, because I, when I was making notes, I was thinking about, yeah, how the significance of the fact that he's not seen it in the the finished cut and how that relates to, in fact, there's a critic who's written about this idea that this reflects the falsification of history. And it's about war, it's warning us not to take historical narratives with too much uh, credulity and that we should be wary about grand narratives and things. And if those were all decisions that were made later. So yeah, very interesting how that changes it. If Dr. Ragozzi is in the cage watching this self-taxidermy, he's in our position. But it also underscores that what links these men is trauma, not biology, right? These, none of these people are biologically related. They're father and son by circumstance. Yeah, but the through line is a kind of corporeal trauma. The grandfather, it looks like he's having sex with a pig. Uh, it also looks like he's having sex with his commanding officer's wife. And it looks like he's having sex with both of the daughters. But at the end of it, it looks like he's been having sex with this pig corpse. But we do see that the commanding officer has been cuckolded, that I imagine that this baby that's born is the grandfather's, and he's born with the pig's tail, so kind of mixing the two together. But when it comes to the competitive eater, to the father, are you saying that it is the other competitive eater that got the female competitive eater, his rival, Bella? Is that the father of our final person? Great question. Yeah, I guess paternity is at least in question. I assumed so, but I have no real basis for that, except that we saw them fucking... We sure did. We sure did. Yeah. And we don't really see the father and the mother having sex. We just see, yeah, the rival. We see Bella having sex with her. Geezy. Bella is also eating what looks like a pig leg or a pork leg. So I guess it goes back to that earlier sex scene with combining it with pigs and with food. And yeah, there is a kind of, yeah, there's a sort of deliberate kind of parallel there. Bella never stops eating. Even when he's talking, he's eating at Chewing. all times. Yeah. He really is engaged in this sport, whereas our, our main competitive eater, he takes breaks. You know, you got to be eating all the time. Yeah. If there's ever an advertisement for not eating with your mouth full, it's this film. It's just such a brilliant image of that. Both like a parody, it's like an inversion and also like an exaggeration of that ideal of the Soviet era of this extreme physical endurance, isn't it? Physical discipline, which is taken in this other direction. We think of that, the Stakhanovite image of the highly disciplined athletic body. And it's, it's another kind of discipline. It's another kind of endurance, I guess. And I guess Soviet or communist culture, it was all about this celebration of like mass events, mass display. And this is taken very literally here. So I just think that's such a brilliant kind of carnivalesque parody of that whole period, really. It really embodies this kind of masculinist expansion that was very characteristic of the Cold War, right? And this kind of this body that grows and grows and doesn't have limits. But thinking about Stakhanovism, I was also thinking about the idea of the man-machine. 
For example, when we're watching the little boys get inducted into competitive eating, it's in a warehouse and there's this series of pipes behind the boys that you think is just a piece of equipment, but it's actually human anatomy. It's like a, it's showing the digestive system through, through pumps and pistons. And that gets reflected back in Lyosha's self-taxidermy machine where machines take on the roles of his body and he becomes a man-machine. And in a way, he's living out this Soviet and state socialist ideal of the man-machine, this kind of constructivist ideal in the post-socialist period, which also encourages men to interface with machines, right? The, the ideal is Arnold Schwarzenegger, which we see in the poster when he's working out. So he can't engage with the machine that way and, and become successful that way by building his body, but he does it in a different way that also reflects the ideals of the past. It's really interesting. Yes, it seems like he goes to a gym, doesn't it, at one point, and then there's somebody, there's an unseen person telling him about all these various kinds of treatment, and it's all about this idea of like bodily discipline or bodily modification. And as you say, there's that picture of Schwarzenegger, isn't there, while he's doing his exercises. And we also see later, a little bit later, there's a picture of Michael Jackson as well, which is very telling. Yeah, in terms of the self-created body. Yeah, it was interesting. In one article I read, it was, they were saying, oh, and Michael Jackson is there just to show the westernization of, of uh, Hungary at this time. And I was like, yes, but more to me, it's about bodies, because there's no more famous changer of bodies than Michael Jackson. And also just in terms of Lyosha's desire to embody this ideal of the, the muscular physique, he's going to get the girl. He's so lonely. He can't work out. He can't get a date. But he does ultimately become this ideal form, which is like this Grecian statue in a white alcove, and he does ultimately get there in the end, but at what cost, right? He has to self-commodify, he has to kill himself, essentially. It feels like everybody is using tools and machines. I mean, even when you think about the um, the the machinery of the vomitorium that they have for these competitive eaters, and that the way that they're spraying, I, I'm I'm thinking it's condensed air, but I don't know what they're spraying into their own mouths in order to force them to throw up. I've been thinking a lot about the abject lately, which is just, it's this kind of theoretical conception that the abject is something that crosses borders and it creates a sense of disgust and discomfort because it's, it transcends borders. In this case, it transcends the border between what's should be inside and unseen, becomes externalized and very much in our faces, right? And it creates this disgust and discomfort. And usually in cinema, body fluids are linked to the abject. And this kind of monsters a character. It turns a character into a monster. So we think about like the externalized wombs and organs in Cronenberg's films, or just like a simple example of like a vampire, right? Is a monster because it pulls what should be inside outside blood. But What's monstered with abject imagery isn't one person. It's not, Kalman isn't really a monster, certainly not during the 60s. It's the state. It's the state apparatus that sets up this competition that raises young boys to compete in it, that has the troughs and it has the young pioneers competing, uh, doing their performance. <laughs> the whole system's out of order. The whole system is abject and, and monstered. It's interesting. I still haven't seen Infinity Pool, but apparently the competitive eater actor is in Infinity Pool. There's an essay, I can't remember who, it's Malgajata Bugai's article about the film, and she talks about, yeah, on that theme of, as you say, 
like the things that how the things that are internal are presented are represented and she talks about that sequence at the end where Lyosh is taking out his own innards and how weirdly beautiful that is just shot in a kind of sensual sort of slow deliberate way and on kind of many other kind of disgusting images that we see it's it's actually not i would say an unpleasant sequence somehow it it is weirdly beautiful and poetic and like you say this is there is this taboo isn't there around you know this representation of what is inside because we associate it with horror we associate it with death but yeah there is something so poetic about that sequence when he does cut himself open and sew himself back up he goes around the belly button and the last shot of the film is us going into that belly button kind of again like you're talking about that cyclical thing this is tying us to the whole birth cycle that started way back with the grandfather and now is here with the grandson and then we're going back and back and back and we'll never get out of this do we come out of Moroshkovani, the grandfather's belly button at some point as well is it that literal like when he's masturbating? So, I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. He's got that candle and he uses the candle. I mean, you know, like one of the most base machines, right? And it feels like he's kind of sucking the flame into him. So then when he does have that explosion with the flame coming out of his penis, it's like, is that because he sucked the flame in? Is the flame inside of him? Because we also get that moment later on where he's talking to the little batch girl from that amazing, I mean, talk about coming out of nowhere. Just, oh, here's this book. He's going to open this book. It's this beautiful pop-up book of the little match girl. And then suddenly he's inside of it. And all of the set looks like it's made out of paper. It's so great. And he's just basically a pederast with this little match girl and starts talking about making stars. And then you see him masturbate and the sperm goes up into the sky and goes amongst the stars. I mean, Beautiful and disturbing all at the same time. Yeah, because he says something about, yeah, do you want me to magic up the, the stars? And of course, yeah, it's not until you see him masturbating and that the sort of semen flying into the sky that you realize he's talking about ejaculating. And going back to that idea of the navel, yes, that's really interesting too, that it is this image of, yeah, possible rebirth, isn't it? And also this idea of, the way it goes inside at the end, where the camera goes inside, to me, it also relates to what the doctor says about the impossibility of representing this kind of interior experience. Because he says that what we can't really know, or what we can't really represent is what uh, Lyosha's experience was at that moment. And it's almost like in doing that, the camera is trying to reclaim or it's trying to explore this interiority and I guess it's interesting in relation to taxidermy too, because I guess taxidermy is all about hollowing out or emptying out the kind of organic interior, isn't it, of the body and and filling it with something that is like a simulation or something that's artificial. I feel that when we start off with Maurice Gavani's sequence, I feel that in that there is more of a sense of a, there there is a sort of a real interior world that is represented in that. There's a lot of like dream sequences and subjective images. And it's almost like at this point in history, you can talk about the more genuine sense of an interior world. Whereas by the time you get to post-communism, by the time you get to this kind of late capitalist society, it's as though everything has been hollowed out and like our experiences are not our own anymore. And we're in a much more simulated world somehow. I started thinking about the void way late in the game when Laish is 
putting the skin of an orangutan onto a styrofoam. And it's, he's like putting this hollow skin mask onto a form. It's like the eye sockets are looking back at him. And it's, yeah, like you're saying, like the kind of sense of hollowness after 1989, where previous generations had the possibility of revolting against occupations and against power. But the collapse of the system left this kind of vacuum in which the identities of the past are out of date now and globalized capitalism is pervasive and its power is diffuse as well. And it's much harder to define yourself in accordance with or opposition to anything specific. And Laios tries to rebel against his dad's bullying by spending this evening at the gym. But trying to look like this globalized standard of masculine perfection is hardly a rebellion, right? So with no clear oppressor, there's no clear resistance. And he's, so he has this kind of void, right? And he's constantly interacting with voids, like you're saying. He can't get a date, and he's lonely, and he never seems to eat. But his job is also to empty bodies and refill them. So these two kind of discourses of voids and loneliness kind of join when he taxidermies himself. Like, he fills his void the only way he knows how. I wonder if we can talk a little bit about genre, because opening with a scene in which someone performs this kind of ritual with a candle, like he treats the candle as if it was an animate object, an inanimate being, really. He treats it as a lover. And then he absorbs the flame himself. And it's announcing itself as a magic realist film. It establishes the realist setting, and then it undermines it with something surprising and magic. And I was thinking about Agas Krotska's amazing book about magic realism in East European cinema. And she writes about how magic realist films often showcase life on the periphery, geographically, where like borders are really fluid and they get drawn and redrawn and basic facts like your nationality and your military alliance like are constantly changing. And these are also areas where maybe like superstition and tradition live on. And taxidermia really begins on the margins in some like really rural outpost. It also seems to create this dual register of like sense and nonsense. Because I don't think it was just poor subtitles. A lot of times those in power aren't making sense. Like I'm thinking of the military commander and the doctor at the end. And like Skrotska writes a lot about how magic realism is a way to reveal what's been censored from the official narrative, like what's grotesque, what's been hushed up, what resists easy categorization and so doesn't belong in the grand historical narrative. And it can convey the tension between these contradicting realities. Like the you have maybe political ideals that you have to live within, like communism and capitalism. And then you have your material conditions, which would seem to contradict the promise of those ideas. Yeah, it'd be interesting to rewatch Taxidermia from that perspective and think, of, think about it as a magic realist. Did you guys have any kind of sense of genre for this film? No, I know it's been described as a horror film, but I've never taken it as a horror film. I think the most horrific moment that you get is the self-taxidermy. And some of that reminds me of like things like, um, uh, oh gosh, what was that one by the Soska sisters? Um, oh, American Mary. No, the other one. Yeah. yeah, that was the one, yeah, where there's so much body modification inside of that. But yeah, I didn't really take it as a horror film. I did take it more as a magical realist film, especially with things like the shot with 
the penis and the flame at the beginning, yes, that really took me and made aware that this was going to be a very different film. But what really grabbed me was the whole thing with the bathtub when the camera is going around and around and showing all of the different ways that that bathtub can be used, where it's for food, for for making food for the parts of the pig for birth. There was a baby like, like a bassinet at one point. It looked like it was somebody's was laid out for a funeral and just the way that this tub is used in all these different ways. That was really what made this movie special for me. It was once we got to that moment, I was like, Oh, okay. Now I know a little bit more of what to expect because until that point, I thought it was just going to be literally as a, a movie about a put upon underling soldier at some weird outpost where it was basically the guy's house. It felt like it was indentured servitude. It didn't feel like it was military. And to hear all of the things that the, that the grandfather had to do for the commanding officer, I was like, he's a slave basically. Various critics have written about the fact that although it, it seems to be set during the Second World War. There's actually only like maybe one reference to the war, and it feels more that we're in a kind of feudal environment. So that, I guess, in itself is interesting, isn't it, as an example of periphery, because it's a periphery between different... I remember from Skrodzka's book that she talks a lot about how magic realism emerges from this context in which you have this kind of combination of modernity and tradition. And it feels like that in this first episode especially where it seems to be mid-20th century it seems to be the war era and yet as an environment this feels that we're still stuck in a feudal society and it's this society in which i guess the sort of essential the, the sort of fundamental stages of life are all like mixed together everything happens in the same place and there's no distinction between the place that you bathe in the place that you cook in the place that you die in and again i guess it relates to this sense of somehow this kind of organic world that will be replaced in the episodes after as modernity becomes more and more prominent. What struck me with the bathtub sequence is that we see the tub as an environment for bodies and objects, and they just flip back and forth. So it becomes a kind of mix, a little like a microcosm mixing ground, where you see subjects and objects occupy the same space, which is interesting in a film in which subjects become objects, right? The body becomes a thing. But it's interesting to think about the tub itself because it has an inscription on it. It says 1901. And so you see the way that this object really outlives humans. So to turn, ultimately to turn a human being into an object is to grant it the persistence, the staying power of an object, right? The political system may change, but Lajos and his dad will remain as these grotesque reminders, these stubborn relics of trauma. That's really interesting too, isn't it, in relation to Kalman in, in the second episode, because the way that the sports people are treated, they almost are treated like objects to be disciplined and to be given these various instructions. And they're treated as spectacle, I guess. It's like the body becomes a, a grotesque spectacle for the benefit of... Actually, interestingly, again, in this case, I guess it's not the westernized gaze, but it's the Soviet gaze, isn't it? It's the, when they're on that boat, on that yacht, they are there just to display themselves for the pleasure of this, what is an important Soviet official. So they are almost like objectified in that sense. But I guess when Kalman talks about his experience of being a, a speed eater and of how he 
got into that, he talks about this. He says there was a buzz or a thrill that he got from it and from specifically this feeling that his body was getting bigger or his insides were getting bigger. And there's almost like a sense of, I don't know, that there's a sense of, I mean, I wouldn't take it so far as some critics have where they've said that this is a sort of a rebellion that he beats like this, but there is a sort of a, there's a reclamation somehow of his identity through what he's doing. And yeah, again, it relates to this idea of interiority. And so his feeling is that his insides are getting bigger. He's becoming powerful somehow by doing this. So yeah, there is a weird ambiguity about that, about whether he is an object, whether he's exploited or whether he's getting some pleasure and some sense of identity from doing this. Right. And it becomes his whole identity. Ultimately, all he can be is this eating machine and enact this little totalitarian state in his shitty apartment where he's enacting he's enacting power the same power that was done to him onto the cats right he's force feeding them essentially right but any system of power his reign can only be upheld by the unloved undervalued labor of others right which is Lyosh like cleaning up and emptying his bedpan or whatever it's master and servant yeah it's like the mask that is stuck to the face right We've gone back to the commanding officer and the subordinate again. Morish Kavani is also reduced to an object, right? As a soldier servant, you are reduced to your use value as a body, either way, as cannon fodder or as the labor you can deliver until you wear out. And so his sexual fantasies are a kind of rebellion, a kind of reassertion of his subjecthood, right? He has the power of the gaze. He may have no other power, but he has that power of the gaze. I wondered if you guys had any thoughts about the intensity of the close-ups, both during the self-taxidermy scene, but also when Morishkovani is watching the women bathe. Because, of course, the stereotypical trope is that we cut women up into easily consumable pieces. But these close-ups are so tight that you can't really, you can't really objectify these women because you can't tell what patch of skin you're looking at exactly. They bleed into each other, and you're not sure what part of the body you're looking at. Just like during the self-taxidermy scene, you're not sure. You know it can't really be human skin, but you're not sure what you're seeing. It really it messes with your ability to categorize, to make sense of what's happening, and it puts you in this state of suspension where you can't. It undermines your ability to make sense, right? And that's fascinating in a historical narrative where you expect the past to be made sense of for you, but this film resists any grand narrative, right? It, it resists and it, it upends and it messes with your ability to make sense of things. Yes, it's constantly sort of playing with perception, isn't it, in that way? And also with time period too, because there is, it's fascinating for me how it just slips from one time period into another without a clear distinction. And the camera, it does the, again, I guess you get into that kind of spinning motion and then suddenly you are in a different era Stephen Shaviro, in his essay, he talks about the fact that actually a lot of the kind of major kind of historical turning points absent. So you don't really see anything about the end of the war. You don't see anything about the communist takeover, about the 1956 revolution, the, the 1989 revolution. All those things are absent. So I guess that relates to this idea of, of ambiguity or of playing with historical narrative because, yes, it's constantly leaving things out isn't it cutting things out and yes it's as though this idea of yeah grand narratives is, is being scrambled all the time sensory details are what get passed down generationally like a lot of this felt like a story that had been elaborated on 
Or a story that like a grandfather is sugaring up and oversharing, right? These are the squalid details, right? These are absolutely not exactly as you're saying. This is not a grand historical narrative. It's really interesting. Yeah, you really have to bring a lot to this movie in order to even begin to understand it. Because if you don't know the historical context of a lot of the stuff, it's like, what's going on? <laughs> what's happening? Yeah, it doesn't give you a lot. Yeah, you would think maybe there should be a voiceover to this, but I'm kind of glad that there isn't. That it does leave you just participating a lot more. I have, have to be a lot more of an active participant to see this. Palfi's communicating to us through our body senses not by making sense, right? This isn't a narrative that explains, that categorizes heroes and villains. In a national setting where there have been so many upheavals and so many historical narratives that are changing constantly, this film is really resisting that. That's very interesting in relation to Hungarian cinema specifically, which I guess in the communist era at least, and, and subsequently too, was so preoccupied with history and with this narrative of heroism and of, of villains and of enemies. And yeah, I guess in that context, it's even more subversive. We're disoriented, we're nauseous, we're disillusioned, we feel sensorily invaded, and our experience is out of our control, much like one might feel if one were undergoing a political upheaval. Speaking of the close-ups of, of body parts, one moment that really strikes me is the one in the hospital with uh, Gisela, the, the wife of, of Kalman, when you see the sweat, it's like the bead of sweat from the underarm. And again, it's one of those images, like you say, which is not clear the first time you see it. You don't know what you're seeing. And then you see the drop of sweat drip onto Kalman's face. And then he licks it off his face, doesn't he? And it's almost this, it, there's a weird sensuality to that. But again, it's playing with our perceptions of, yeah, of the male gaze, with what's beautiful, what's ugly, what's disgusting, and what's sensuous. And yeah. I don't know what more to take away from that, but I just found it such a striking and weirdly sensual moment. Yeah, and it's also, it's abject, right? It's the body fluid escaping that we don't usually see in cinema, but it's also really coherent within Kalman, right? What, how does he interface with the world by consuming it? Felt like a very almost sweet gesture. I love when we get to see the flash of the fetus that's inside of Giza and or Gizi. And uh, that we, that's how we know that she's pregnant. And then they have to hide it and say that it's cyst. And then how he calls his son a cyst later on that he's just treated like some sort of myoma that came out of his mother. I love that. And then we also get the fetus again with that doctor. I mean, what kind of person is this doctor that he brings in a fetus to be taxidermied and put inside of a glass ball like a like a freaking keychain? This is another instance of subjects becoming objects, right? Because like from the moment of his conception, his aliveness, Lyosh is constructed as something to be removed, right? An object to be removed if it's causing problems, a cyst or a fibroid or whatever and just like the keychain, right? It's this fetus objectified. It's sad and weird. <laughs> when you wonder what kind of world it is where this doctor can just bring a fetus into a taxidermy shop and no one blinks an eye. I mean, what kind of world are we living in? And that world that, that the son is living in at the end with the, the grocery store and just those awful, awful green fluorescence just makes him look even worse than he normally does. More gliding though, right? Appreciate foreshadowing <laughs> and the supermarket too it's really fascinating in terms of the parallels that it has with the scenes in the communist period because i guess we think of 
one of the differences between capitalism and communism as being you go from homogeneity and just mass uniformity to individuality. And yet it's the same, isn't it? In the supermarket, you just see that big display of the same object with the same brand name. And it's almost just repeating that same image of uniformity, except that now it's it's brand names and it's sort of private enterprise rather than state enterprises. What's also interesting to me as well is in the final episode is that you don't really see much of the food, whereas I guess in the first and second episodes, the food is very tactile and it's very much embodied in this disgusting, disgusting as it is, whereas in the final episode, everything is in sort of shiny packaging, isn't it? And even the candy bars, Calman just eats them whole with the wrapping still on and it's almost as though there's nothing inside and everything now is just shiny surfaces like he's my body can absorb things that shouldn't be eaten like objects and then he's stuffed with objects later because <laughs> this film is full of little like foreshadowed easter eggs but it's interesting too the the brand name on the butter or the lard or whatever it is is riga right so it's not even a corporate brand name, maybe. It's still invoking the Eastern Bloc in its own way. That's true. Yeah. I love the way that he shoots those cats. It makes the cats look so big. in <laughs> each time he goes back, even though it feels like it's only a period of days, it feels like those cats are bigger each time we go to it. It's feeding time at the zoo, but it's also interesting the way he, the way he cleans up after his father and feeds his father is also... The zoo, he sweeps up, he empties the bedpan, and then he dumps the lard in like a crate next to the dad within easy reach. It's <laughs> this film is fantastic. It's really coherent in its own way. What did you make of the fact that when he's at the supermarket at the checkout, that he he's actually specifying that he he's buying like huge quantities of things, and yet he only ever has one object of each thing? Yeah, it took me a long time to figure that one out, that he was bringing all those candy bars back to his father, it sounds like, and way more lard than just the one thing that we see. I wasn't sure like what the idea was there, whether that he was meant to be just buying more on order or something like that, but there, there, there just seemed to be something deliberate, because of course it's repeated several times. In the 60s, this masculine expansion is physicalized in Kalman's body, but under global capitalism masculine expansion or at least like the kind of desirable expansion is buying power and maybe it's something to do with that i don't know yeah you wonder where he gets his money i mean it's obviously not from the taxidermy shop i don't think he's making money hand over fist because it sounds like it's a lot of money that he's spending on his dad maybe his dad's on a pension or something he just is so about those glory days when he's watching the I think it's the 1984 Olympics, where apparently competitive eating is now an Olympic sport. That's how we find out that Gizi has left him, that she's there now coaching this, it looks like an American, that she moved over and became an, you know, is working now in America. I don't know if that's how he's getting all that money for the candy bars and the lard or, or not. But what else does he have in his life, though? He doesn't eat. He has one espresso a day, and he taxidermies. <laughs> really, I some the little... Isolated nerd in me really liked Laosh and <laughs> really identified with him. And he doesn't seem to have another place to live, does he? He lives either in somewhere in in the place with the father or in in the shop itself. Yeah, he doesn't seem to yeah have any many other expenses. In that beautiful big area down below the taxidermy shop where he's doing the uh, the the self taxidermy and stuffing his father and all that. I mean. 
it's it reminds me it's funny because we just watched the fifth seal another hungarian film might be the first hungarian film i've watched in a little while and that has this amazing kind of brutalist uh building where all this torture is taking place and then when they go into the basement of the taxidermy shop i'm like this looks like it's right out of that just all the concrete and the sharper angles and things that yeah i was really taken aback by the the set design on that yeah and there's this moment so we're in this giant concrete basement slash parking garage i couldn't quite tell and then we're like approaching on a track we're approaching the self-taxidermy machine which is spotlit in this morgue kind of greenish yellowish lighting but we're passing behind these concrete pillars so the screen cuts to black and it's like the film is deteriorating because we're seeing the spaces between frames almost and it's as taxidermy is coming to an end it's starting to disintegrate it's starting to rot we're seeing the gaps reflect something that Lyosh said to his dad when they were having an argument he's Gizzy didn't want to stay here and everything rots here. She didn't want to stay here and watch you rot. And it's like the film is rotting. And there's there are other self-referential references to filmmaking during the self-taxidermy scene, like where the intestines get pulled out and they start going on spools, like film stock. And I was thinking about like, how is filmmaking like self-taxidermy? Like, what is this analogy? And I was thinking that Palfi wrote this, he co-wrote this section of the film. The first two sections are based on short stories, but this one he co-wrote. And he would have been about Lyosh's age. And if we want to read this as an autobiographical statement or an authorial statement, is making a film about generational trauma a kind of autobiography? And is that a kind of self-taxidermy, right? Are you preserving your wounds, your experiences in this kind of permanent statement that becomes a commodity no matter how circuitous your narrative is, there's still a permanence to a film, even a digital one. That could relate to this idea of, of the the ending and the beginning with the voiceover by the doctor, and it's this, this self-commentary. There's a filmmaker who now has to make films for an international audience, so I guess that would tie into that as well, really, that there's this awareness that, yeah, you're making films about your national, your, your historical experience, but you were also having to sell them to an international audience. Yeah, I definitely was thinking that same thing with the spooling. It reminded me there was a Masters of Horror episode, I think it was called Cigarette Burns, where a man basically feeds himself into a projector. And so I was so reminded of that. Yeah. I've heard that pig skin, like pig bodies are sometimes used in filming for like surgery scenes, because I guess like a shaved pig looks a lot like human flesh did you got have you heard that first of all and do you think that maybe they're they used pigs for Lyosh's body when he's cutting it apart it does look like that yeah it does have that kind of texture somehow doesn't it but yeah it made it did make me think of that which obviously ties into the beginning right yeah the whole burning of the body and taking all the um the the, the hair off of it and then all the preparation i mean it's quite a ritual and there's so so many <laughs> this movie has more disemboweling scenes than i've seen in a long time <laughs> yeah but also the confusion of human and pig bodies is the sex scene as well yeah and definitely pig flesh is supposed to be very 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 similar to human flesh i know that there was i'm trying to remember the name of the artist heidi something who created an entire house that was 
basically covered in pig flesh and invited people to walk through it and to touch the flesh. And yeah, it was, it was intense. This is another tangent, but I believe that Barovchik used pig's blood for the bathing scenes in Immoral Tales. How did you guys read the sex with the... Did you read it as him having sex with the bathtub full of meat, but remembering a previous encounter with the mom? How did you read that? I didn't for a second think that she was really there. And especially when she was talking about... You know, I'm a good girl. And oinking. And, yeah, and oinking. And then and then as soon as it started to cut to the daughters, I was like, okay, for sure, this is not happening. But yeah, when she came in, it just seemed to penthouse forum, you know, the, the man who with the family all the time, and then the mo- mom tries to seduce him. Took it as deliberately ambiguous, really. As you said, when it shows the daughters, that is clearly meant to be fantasy. But yeah, I saw it as just a deliberate act of confusion it's that dissolved borderline between human and animal or meat and sex or i didn't think he was having sex at all with anybody because he's so desperate in the way that he greases up that knot hole and has sex with that and then i i don't know if it was a um if world culture deems the male genitals to be a cock but i thought it was pretty funny when the cock attacks his cock that was pretty nice i took it as that yeah i'm not sure how that yeah whether that a similar sort of slang word exists in hungarian but i think it is fairly common isn't it to make that analogy so uh, yeah i took it like that as well that there was a sort of a verbal joke there did you guys have a chance to see hukle by any chance which is the feature that palfi made right before this oh yes yes i have yes yes really takes place in a rural village. And there are lots of close-up shots of animals that are they receive the same kind of central framing as subjects. So they're really characters in the film. And there's almost no verbal dialogue anyway. But it's interesting. I read somewhere, and I'm sorry, I can't remember this, that animals in Palfi's films tend to serve like a corrective function because they are not corrupted by state power. So they serve as little moral centers. <laughs> I thought about this when the rooster pecked the penis, just being like, what are you doing? <laughs> Put it away. He's a fascinating filmmaker. Look at that one to look at the one, what is it, ladies and gentlemen, or is it Final Cut, ladies and gentlemen? Oh, man, what an interesting movie that is. I felt like it had the potential, like you can do anything. If you're drawing from 500 films, you can tell any story. And I just felt like it it just told a basic story, and I was really disappointed by it. Have you seen Freefall? Because I felt that Hookley and this and Freefall, I felt that were more of a piece, and the other films I've seen felt, as you said, in the case of Final Cut, felt a little compromised somehow. It felt, as you said, the potential was there, but yeah, it's a great idea, and it, technically it's amazing, but yeah, I thought that Freefall, for me, was the one that was closest to the spirit and the sort of just artistic level, too, of taxidermia. There's some really transgressive and outrageous stuff in that. And again, there is some stuff with animals, too. There's a sort of a sequence that's possibly hallucinatory involving a cow in that. So, yeah, to me, that was the film that I could connect most easily with taxidermia. I was really trying to get a hold of Palfi for this episode and was not able to get in touch with him at all. He made a sci-fi film in 2018 called His Master's Voice based on Stanislav Lem's 
were very loosely based on Stanislaw Lemon's book. And that was interesting. It didn't, I must say, didn't quite work for me, but maybe the, the fact that it was, it's mainly in English somehow didn't, it, it just didn't, it just felt jarring somehow. It's just the sort of the, the presence of many Canadian actors and felt like a kind of a mishmash somehow, but I, I should watch it again. I'm probably being a bit unfair to it really. And it's one of those many adaptations of Stanley's Web Lamb that suffers by comparison with the book. And I should maybe watch it again on its own terms, but didn't quite live up to his other films. And I haven't been able to track down his 2021 film, Perpetuity. That one looks interesting as well. It's not like Hungarian films are just crowding out everything American at the cinemas these days, unfortunately. It was it was interesting that Taxi Dermot did get quite a it got quite a wide exposure really at the time. That I guess in itself again comes back to the self reflexivity of the opening and the close of the film where it's this cachet of the freak show, isn't it? It's the cachet of transgressive or extreme material and and I guess it did work. It did become pretty the fact that it was on DVD in the UK and that I was able to see it at the time bespeaks the fact that it, it did get some recognition. And there were rumours that it was going to be Hungary's Oscar entry, right? Which, mental, but fantastic. I would love to make the Academy watch this film. Yeah, and the, they teamed it so much for the poster with the uh, torso, with just the little bit of a, a stitch down the middle and the two arms missing and the head missing. It's like, that kind of speaks to the end of this movie, but not really. And it really doesn't just show you the, the breadth and depth of this one. Right. And it's so interesting that the scene that is meant to be the big reveal, the big grotesque payoff is actually, like you're saying, Jonathan, like the most beautiful scene and the scene that feels very sincere. And it it feels like the film is saying, look, like bodies really are beautiful if they're not being rendered grotesque by state power. On the inside, they're quite beautiful. And when in fact, it's the rest of the film that's grotesque. It's like possession, like it was sold as the video nasty where Johnny fucks the octopus. But it's really the world that's grotesque, right? And that scene in itself doesn't stand out as particularly distressing. Palfi said something in an interview about how he was wanting to challenge the boundary of beauty and ugliness, or I guess between humanity and animals or living bodies and meat and things like that. And it reminds me of something that David Cronenberg said about, about disease. He said, disease can be beautiful. Now, I'm probably misremembering it a little bit, but it was something along those lines. And the fact that that Lyosh is called cyst at one point and that, that they pretended that it was a cyst, the doctor kind of uh, was bribed to, to say that. It's quite interesting because it's almost this idea of looking at human life and then looking at these kind of like biological processes and rendering them one and the same. And it's this idea that some kind of disease or some kind of like human malformity can be beautiful in its own way. Well, it's like David Lynch when he was talking about the Elephant Man and how he sees the polyps and things as almost slow motion explosions. And we know how much David Lynch loves a good nuclear explosion. And when he said that, I was just like, oh, yeah, I can so see that. And it's also focusing on the body is just such an effective way to communicate, especially for filmmakers figuring out how to navigate this increasingly globalized marketplace, right? An, an international audience may not know why a given historical event is important. They might not care. But every viewer has a body, right? And there are fundamental things that cause this disgust and anxiety, especially in the extreme, like vomiting, right? So bodies in very 
specific circumstances constitute this universal language. Very true. Because if you think of one of the, but if you think about who Clay, I mean that that already got a certain amount of attention internationally. And as you said, that's a film with virtually no dialogue. There's only like a song at the end, and that's all the spoken language or verbal language that you hear in there. And I guess one of the other few filmmakers from this region who has continued to be successful after the end of communism is Schwankmeyer. And Schwankmeyer, again, is a filmmaker who speaks entirely in a language of affect and visceral substances. And again, a lot of the power and the sort of international appeal that his work has is based on that fact that, yeah, there is not that barrier of language and there is that immediate effective quality that his work has. And this film made me think a lot of conspiracies of pleasure, actually. The scene with Maurice Gavani at the beginning where he's fondling the flame made me think of those kind of moments of private libidinal pleasure in conspiracies of pleasure. Yeah, that's another possible connection there. And, and Schwankmeier is so relevant to taxidermia because all of his work is about objects becoming animate and breaking, testing that boundary via magic realism between subjecthood and objecthood. Interesting. Yeah, like those skulls inside of Alice that are still alive, even though they're just skulls. Yeah, little Odic, right? It's so funny to me, Jonathan, that you came to this movie through Amon Tobin, basically. <laughs> just of all the ways to come in, you come in through the music door. I was like, oh. Okay, yeah, because the music, I mean, it's its spare, but it's great, and I love that it's more electronica, which doesn't necessarily match with any of the time periods, maybe the last one, but it works in this. It works very well. It's interesting. It's almost analogous to the film itself, because I guess the film itself is extremely material, extremely physical, and yet uses CGI, and I guess the music is a mix of, of yes, like electronic sound and what sounds like very kind of real percussive noises and there is that sort of physicality too to the to the music yeah it reminded me of shamanka where there were like it's a very electronic score but the sex scenes and the scenes set in a factory Zhuavsky had the scores reversed so that the sex scenes of which there are many had a factory score and it i felt like in a film that's about corporeality to have this kind of mechanized industrial digital or electronic scores really i don't know it's just it, it's a certain it's a certain atmosphere <laughs> it's very interesting i was thinking about jonathan what you were saying about liminality and magic realist films set in geographical peripheries where tradition lives on right it, it persists and i was thinking about this idea in at least in europe in the middle ages that a woman's imagination during pregnancy could influence her birth. For example, if a baby was born covered in hair, the best medical minds at the time would be like, oh, yes, it's because the woman was looking at this painting of a bear while she was pregnant when her deformities were blamed on pacts with the devil and all these kinds of things. But it's weird to say, but maybe we're all pig babies in the sense that we're warped or shaped by our parents' imaginations, by their living conditions, by their fantasies even. And attempting to cut off our pigstails won't do anything if we live in a system that treats us as livestock. I really want to think more about the pigtail. Yeah, because it never really comes back. I thought for sure that there would be a moment where we get to see the scar or something on uh, on his back. It just shows it once briefly, doesn't it? When his pants are like halfway. They, they, but that's the only, yeah, it's fairly early in that sequence. But yeah, after that, there's not much, uh, there's any real reference to it. 
But then he has cattails coming out of him at the very end. He's warped by his own imagination, right? Do you think that the son killed those cats? Are those the father's real cats? I, I figured that there was meant to be some kind of struggle between them. and Because you see those big scratches down his back. And maybe he killed them in self-defense. Or there was some... Yeah, I figured that there was some... In fact, in the deleted scenes, there is a moment where a cat just leaps out. Yeah, I figured there was some kind of tussle somehow. Yeah, you see the scratches much more clearly in the deleted scenes, for sure. When he's walking down the hallway and you get that the five big or four big marks across his back. Yeah, and there's that horror moment where he looks around and realizes he can't see one of the cats. <laughs> that scene where he enters the apartment is truly when it's a horror film, right? Yeah, when, when you see that flash go by the screen, it's basically the closest to a jump scare that you're going to get in this one. This is just an observation, but I, I thought it was interesting that Lyosh kind of does what a lot of governments have done in East Central Europe, which is to put the past on display, right? There are like these museums all over the region dedicated to the state socialist past, where you can walk through reconstructed living rooms and listen to uh, radio broadcasts and read old magazines and look at kitchen utensils and stuff like that. And, and it's, what do we do with the physical remains of these systems of power, right? We commodify them and make them marketable to an international audience. And I don't know, I wonder if when Lyosh taxidermies himself as well, is it a statement that I too belong to the past in the sense that I have been warped by my father and my grandfather's trauma, and thus I'm too warped to thrive in this current system, perhaps, and so I too am a relic. The whole thing ends with him. He has no children. This can't go on for a fourth generation. And he's preoccupied. The thing that he does as his occupation is all to do with death, isn't it? And it's stuffing dead things. And yes, I guess that situates him in the past, really, rather than in the present of the society that he lives in. Yeah, I was curious, even when he's... The first thing we see him taxidermy is a bear. And I just was like, is that the Russian bear? Am I supposed to be picking up on that? He is the second coming of Maurice Gavani, isn't he? He is the sort of the history repeating itself. And also, I mean, just the color red, especially through the second part of it, we get red all over the place. And I love how they're eating that caviar out of the big red star. Oh, man, oh, man. At first, I thought it was baked beans because they had the bacon yeah, in there that's with really it. Disgusting, but, isn't it? Raw bacon, isn't it? And it's raw bacon, <laughs> yes. <laughs> They're endangering no, the no, house no. even more with eating raw bacon. That sequence of them having fun together, that is also in the deleted scenes, and it goes on for a lot longer. I mean, it really goes on for a long time to the point where I'm like, is this, this is really going on this long? Okay. <laughs> I, I didn't think, I love, I love those little moments like the, her throwing up on the side of the swing, the park ride, and her over on the side. I just love the framing of this. And just, he does, you were talking about the close-ups. He tends to go close-up or very far away. There's not a lot of medium shots in this. It's definitely not the traditional narrative where we're, we expect to see bodies of a certain size and in a certain position. But I'm so glad he had that scene of Gizzy throwing up. And I guess it's not in the final film, but yeah. Park rides aren't romantic. Why do we keep selling ourselves this narrative? <laughs> Let's go get terribly dizzy and vomit. Not even doing it professionally. Not even professionally vomiting. I love how he's like, I had a vomiting technique named after me. The scenes of the Olympics are also in those deleted scenes. You get the VHS tape that he's watching. You Ronald get Reagan. that. And yeah. 
it's very, very repetitive. Again, it's basically, here's the guy eating, here's Geezy over in the stands, go, 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 and then back to him, and then back to her, and it just goes on and on and on. But I love that they shot it. I mean, it looks very, very VHS. I really appreciate that. Maybe it was a relief to shoot something pleasurable for, for a change, right? Like this extended vacation date and, and a competition. I don't know. The transition to the sun is fantastic that we've got him being the, I'm taking it that he's the runt of all of those babies and he's the only one that's not crying when we get to see all those babies uh, as we go from two to three. And then we get him breastfeeding with his mother and then we move over to this it almost looks like shattered glass but it's not that but we go into the glass and that's our transition into the next one and then we end up with the ascent of a bird shitting on the sidewalk what a way to go the abject right <laughs> sorry i'll stop saying that but yeah like if close up on shit yep but it's interesting to think about the two the first two as a pair right because they are written they're based on the same source text by the same author who appears as the corpse in the tub. So he gets a little Hitchcock cameo. It's interesting to think about the first two protagonists as opposites, right? One is at the bottom of the barrel in terms of power. He's living in a shack with a... He's doing all the worst jobs. He's scrawny. He's sexually desperate. And Kalman, on the other hand, is massive. And he's on his way to becoming an international champion. And he's got this lover. And he's having a kid. And he's on a cushy holiday. And he has plenty to eat, even if he can't keep it. So ostensibly, these men could not be more different. But both of their lives are driven by physical torment and squalor, right? And both have to hide their desiring gaze and do these exaggerated performances of obedience and each man's body kind of rebels against these constraints, right? Kalman's body can't stand the strain of competitive eating. He has a heart attack on stage. And Moroshkovani has to look like he can't. He, his gaze is too rebellious. He has to look and he has to, they called it peep. So no, no matter your position, with, whether you're at the bottom or the top, within these systems of power, the outcome is always physical humiliation and death or near death. And of course, as we move into part three in globalized capitalism, like nothing changes, really. Yeah, I did appreciate the whole look at this film as fascism, communism, then capitalism, and just to see that we're not really better off in any of those systems. I was just intrigued by one of the insignias that you see in the second episode where you see the sports event. And there is a it's not real. It looks like it's a made-up insignia with seems to be the Hungarian national colours, and then it looks like there's a dove of peace on top of two machine guns. And I just, I was just intrigued by the just the bizarreness of that, really. And also, I noticed that there's again, there's a statue that you see with a dove in that episode, and then at the in the final episode, you see another statue, but instead of the dove, it has like real pigeons on it. And I thought that was a, an interesting kind of, it's like a kind of a descent from doves to pigeons between the second and third. So yeah, that was just like a random thing that I noticed. And like pigeon shit, perhaps? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> because the dove is very much an image of the kind of communist era because yeah communist events would often describe themselves as peace forums or peace congresses so that image of the dove is very much tied to state communism and yeah there's been this sort of change from the dove to the pigeon between communism and capitalism 
All right, we're going to take a break and play a preview for next week's show right after these brief messages. back next week with our second Finnish film of the month. I'm sure our download numbers are going to be through the roof with all this Finnish content. It's The White Reindeer. Until then, I want to thank my co-hosts, Lumi and Jonathan. So, Lumi, what's been going on with you? I am in grad school, and I'm also working, and I'm very busy. But I did get to spend my birthday with a bunch of Cenobites from the Hellraiser series. <laughs> so that, that's been the highlight of the autumn for me. Were they just like at a restaurant? Yeah, and, and- sorry. <laughs> As one does. No, I was presenting a paper conference in Birmingham called Cine Access, which was very fun. It's devoted to horror cinema and excessive cinema. And they also do a screening series and they were doing a Hellraiser retrospective. So at their big opening gala for all the speakers, they also had a bunch of cast members who were the best mixers. Academics can't talk to each other, but actors are fantastic so they were like mixing the room and they signed my birthday card and everything it was really sweet oh wow wow oh, that's awesome did you get did you get to meet uh cd head i met the chatterer and i met the woman who has a wound like a vagina in her neck who was like exquisitely dressed like goth goddess and i met butterball butterball was the sweetest and jonathan you are always up to no good what's been going on with you I can't top that, I'm afraid. That makes me miss the UK even more now. Come back. <laughs> yeah, it's calling me. Yeah, so I've got a few things that are in the pipeline, a few things that have just come out. I was very proud to have written the booklet essay for The Mysterious Castle in the Carpathians, which has just been released from the wonderful, amazing company Deaf Crocodile. And I have a, an essay on Czech cult cinema, which will be part of a collection called Decolonizing Cult Cinema, which will be out next year from Bloomsbury. Got a couple of other things pending from a couple of other wonderful labels. And I'm also working on Yinjik Pollack for maybe a, an essay that I'm going to be working on over Christmas and beginning of next year. That's been my holiday season taken care of. 
Well, thank you so much, folks, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. If you want to hear more of me shooting off my mouth, please check out some of the other shows that I work on. They are all available at weirdingwaymedia.com. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projection booth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world. 